The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Well, hello there. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. The Twitter account, if you want to say hi, at The Phil Hay Show. I'm Dan Moylan, and I'm joined by my colleague from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. And we're pleased to say Phil will be back on the show properly as of next week. So this week, we're going to be tidying up all the bits. It's like if your parents have been on holiday, we're tidying the house now before they get back. So you're going to hear Phil Hayes, uh, number two and number one in his top 10 players, the feature that we recorded back in April before Phil went in for his surgery. We're also in a second going to hear from Dermot Corrigan, the Athletics Spanish football writer about Junior Firpo, and James Dixon, author who has written a book about the 92 93 Champions League season, the very first Champions League season that Leeds United were in. He's on the way for you in just a bit. Before we get into all that, then a quick reminder that you can sign up for The Athletic for that special price for the Euros. £1 a month for six months, six quid basically between now and the end of the year for access to the very best sports writing anywhere. And of course, the excellent coverage of Leeds United. It's at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod for details and to sign up. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Now on the Phil Hayes Show, we speak to Dermot Corrigan, who is the Athletics Spanish football writer. Dermot, thank you for coming on. Morning, guys. So first, if we could, a quick reflection before we speak about Junior. England's progression to the to the Euros final. I see that Marker have gone to town a little bit on, on the England performance against Denmark. Suggestions of diving? I'll never, never hear a word of it. <laughs> Yeah, that has been the big takeaway from, from the game last night. People here in Spain, there's an image of English football, which I think English people also like to push over being very pure and traditional values. And it's the Continentals who, with their their dodgy ways of, of diving and cheating and stuff like that. So the, the view here was that Sterling did go down quite easily for, for the penalty. And Harry Kane also, um, a couple of times in the game, was looking for decisions to, to, to go his way, uh, I guess, to say. So certain certain people in Spain anyway have, have enjoyed maybe poking a little bit of fun at, at that the traditional idea of England as the the good guys, the brave knights of, of football. It's amazing, isn't it, how much we get annoyed as football fans when you see the opposition players going down dead easily, but you can turn a blind eye to it when um, it's in your favour, which obviously, you know, as yeah, Englishmen hear sure, it, sure. it is. I moved on very quickly from that penalty, <laughs> I have to say. Well, I did watch it, it went, never a penalty. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how are you finding it then as an Irishman? A divided loyalty, it'd be fair to say. Yeah, I was up for I was up for Thomas Delaney over Declan Rice in the battle of the English or the Irish midfielders <laughs> last night. But it, it's good. Like getting England to the final is super to see. It'll be a great final on Sunday. It's good for the Athletic as well, obviously. So um, I was happy enough with how it ended up. Has there been much talk in the uh, in the media there about Calvin Phillips? Because we're obviously a Leeds show. Um, I just wonder what the perception of him has been because he's kind of arrived on the European stage, hasn't he, in this tournament? Yeah, there was a lot of stuff about him, especially after the the first game when you know maybe um, people in Spain wouldn't have seen that much of, of Calvin Phillips. Like the, the Premier League is on the zone here, so you have to pay an extra subscription to see it. So not that many people watch would watch Leeds week in week out, and people were very impressed by him. But by his industry, kind of those traditional English values of work rate, industry, getting stuck in, commitment, given everything that might be a little bit. Uh, the idea of the team that, that people have here that they are a really hard working team a, a likeable team in that way as well that they, they give their all and, and that was what people were talking about, about when they, they spoke about Calvin Phillips On to Junior Furpo then Leeds latest signing a left back can you tell us a little bit about him because you've seen him prior to Barcelona but well, well, let's start with Barcelona then shall we because his stay there probably didn't go as he would have wished because it was a big move at the time is it fair to say we haven't seen the best of him at Barca? 
Yeah, for sure. Like when he came through at, at Betis, he really made a fantastic impression. In, in about 18 months, he went from nobody knowing who he was to the talk being that everybody in football wanted him. And Barca, you know, as the, the kind of tabloid cliche said, beat off the Real Madrid in order to, to, to get his signature. But from the very start, it was pretty much disastrous. His first game for Barca against Granada, he slipped over twice within the opening seconds of the game. And Granada went ahead after two minutes, you know, ran in behind him after he'd fallen over and, and scored. Barca lost that game. He was taken off at halftime. And as David was going, it couldn't have gone any worse. And he has struggled to, to recover from that. And coaches haven't had that much confidence in him. He has looked a little bit like he, he never really got settled. He's never had a, a run in the team. Jordi Alba's always been first choice left back. He's been fit more or less the whole time. And Junior's had a, a difficult time of it. He's been kind of singled out as well as somebody who with Barca's financial problems, somebody that they've wanted to sell almost as soon as he arrived. There's been talk of them trying to, to cash in him and move him on somewhere else. So he's he's found it difficult and I think he'll be happy to get out and get to a, a club where he'll be you know made, made to feel wanted. Do you think the fee reflects the, the financial constraints that Barcelona, Barcelona are now under? Yeah, I think it's a good deal for, for Leeds because he is, you know, from, from what he did at Betis for Spain under-21s as well, you know, he was seen as one of the the top left backs coming through in Spain and having the qualities to go on and be a, a top player in, in every way. So if Leeds had been signing him, you know, a couple of summers ago, they would have had to pay a good bit extra, a good bit more for him, I think. And and what sort of a player have we got then? If we look at the Betis version of, um, of Junior. Super attacking left back. When he was at his best, he played wing back for a Betis team, which were, uh, Kike Sedian was the coach there and they were a super attacking team, risk-taking team, very similar to, to Bielsa's Leeds, I think. And he just used to power on down the left, own the whole flank, get forward, get into the box, technically very good, set up goals, score goals as well. You know, seemed to be just the perfect left back for that type of a, a team. Defensively, he wouldn't have had that much to do, maybe. Um, wouldn't say he got found out, but just because the way the team played, he didn't have that much defensive responsibility. But on the attack, he was like a force of nature. He was strong, fast, as I say, technically good, scored goals. There was one game at the... The camp now in November 2018 and Betis shocked Barca and won 4-3. He had a super game that day, scored one goal, set up another one. It was un- unstoppable, really. And kind of summarise a, a Betis team who, as I say, quite similar to Leeds, that they had momentum, they had confidence that there were players who maybe weren't well, technically good good players, but hadn't been seen as kind of superstars at other clubs, but just kind of clicked together under a coach who gave them a huge amount of confidence and a, a tactical game plan as well, instructions to follow, and he, he followed them. And at that stage, he looked like he was going to be a, a world beater. So getting yanked on your Barcelona debut, it is downhill from there, mm-hmm. isn't it, really? it's not That's not a good start. Do you think the Barcelona shirt was a bit heavy for him? Maybe. it like that. That's how it did look. It he could have been a victim of circumstances really because it's not been easy at Barca over the last couple of years so if your debut does go that way then you're always up against it kind of and there was no he never really got a chance to come into the team like he even last season he just completed 90 minutes four times that's including like Copa del Rey games where he was brought in and when they rotated the team he's had kind of niggling injuries as well muscle injuries which also happened back at, at Betis like he's still He's never had a run of like six months, I think it's fair to say, where he's just played every game and got got momentum up behind him. So if you're coming to Barca at the size of the club, all the issues that are going on at, at the camp now, financial issues, which we're talking about on the Athletic a lot, if you know that the club are trying to sell you as well, almost as soon as you arrive, you know that the, the coaches, no coach has really shown a huge amount of faith in him. Even Sedian, when he, you know, his former Betis coach, when he took over at Barca, he didn't, you know, give him a run of games in the team either. It was difficult because of, 
all those circumstances that I'm talking about. But it, it was never going to work out from from the start. You know, looking back in hindsight now, it was just it was just never going to work out from. We've alluded to Barcelona's troubles. Just how shambolic is it there with their transfer policy oh. at the moment? Well, I was talking to this to, to colleague David Ornstein as well for his podcast just just half an hour ago, just going on how it's just difficult to overemphasize just how bad the situation is there. I've been writing about Barca's debts mounting, you know, for you know going back three or four years, back to when they signed Coutinho and Dembele on huge, huge salaries, huge uh, transfer fees, and just didn't work out at all. So the problems have been building up behind the scene. And now La Liga have come in and said, look, you have to sort them out. The La Liga have pretty strict financial fair play rules that they were relaxed a little bit because of, of COVID, but now they, they have to deal with it. So the new signings that they brought in, like Aguero, they took from, from Man City and Memphis Depay as well, not able to register them until they cut the wage bill by something like 200 million. So they're going to have to sell players. Junior was somebody who I think they were happy to, to move on. He was happy to leave as well. It just hadn't worked out. But they're going to have to sell players who they don't want to sell. And it's going to be a super difficult uh, summer for Barcelona fans who kind of have going to have to come around to realise that they don't have the money just to pay for the players, the kind of level of players who they're used to. And Barca are not going to be as competitive as they were for a couple of years. And yet they're still trying to give, what, half a million quid a week to um, to Messi? Yeah, that's going to be super interesting to watch as well. Like in, in the, the most recent piece that I did put up this week on, on The Athletic, talking about it, it's kind of speculation because the situation is so uh, fast moving at the minute, it's hard to know. But he's going to have to take a pay cut of something like 80, 90%, something like that to go from like the money that he, he earns at the minute would take up more than half the wage bill that they're going to be allowed to have under La Liga's rules next year. So you can't have one player, no matter who he is, earning that much. So either he says, look, I love Barcelona. I like my family's very settled here in, in the Catalan capital. And they've given a lot to me over the years. I've earned a lot of money. And basically, he just have to sacrifice himself and pay, which, you know, for us wouldn't be for free. But for him, it's something like to, to pay for free to, to help them out of this situation is the only way I can see him. What I'm hearing is that he's now within our price bracket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, I think Rafinha's just taken the number 10 shirt, hasn't he? So. Seriously, like it, I'm not that up to date with, with Leeds' latest figures, but you guys seem to have you know good money. You're getting the Premier League uh, TV deals. You know Leeds have, have done really well off the pitch, is my understanding, in the last couple of years as well. So you're getting to the stage where, which you know five, ten years ago would have been unthinkable, but um, the Leeds and Barca are kind of at the same at a similar level, you know, it should be battling for players at a similar level. I just thought of this now, but it's not that different from Peter Ridsdale, you know, going back, you know, almost 20 years now when Leeds had that wake up call, I guess, or they were living beyond their means and everybody had to leave. Like Barca's situation is, I just thought of that now, but it's not a bad, it's maybe the closest example of, of uh, you know, what, what happens when you, you live with it on your means for a couple of years and you have to, to tighten your belts and live with reality in the end. Interesting what you say there about like um, the financial status of, of the two clubs because Junior, by uh, according to the reports anyway, wasn't on particularly big wages at Barcelona and Leeds are said to have doubled them. So do you have an insight um, Dem, about what sort of level they were at? Because I think there's been a little bit of misreporting about some of this, suggesting he was on like six figures. Yeah, I, I don't have the inside details on, on his wages. I have to say I haven't been watching it that that closely with all that's been going on. But he, he was definitely one of the, the lowest paid squad members at Barca in a way getting rid of him off the wage bill doesn't help them that much and I, I'm not hugely surprised that Leeds are able to offer him more money than, than he was on at Barca given the how things have, have gone relatively at the two clubs over the last couple of years 
And just looking at the structure of the deal, it looks like um, some of it's gone to Betis as a, as a sell-on fee yeah. and uh, the monies that are coming into Barcelona will basically just pay off what is owed to, to Betis on Junior's transfer. Yeah. Is that about, about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. It was an interesting one with, with Junior when he came through first. Um, he had a 50 million. Betis gave him, like, it was obvious that he was going to be a, uh, a really top player and Betis weren't, were never going to be able to hang on to him for too long. So they, they cleverly got got him to sign a new contract um, you know, when the speculation was, was ramping up over who was going to sign him with a 50 million release clause. In the end, he went to Barca for something like 20 million. But because of that, Betis were able to, to put in those clauses in, in the contract. Again, you know, negotiating with Barca back in Bartomeu's time, lots of clubs got the better of the, the deals that they did with, with the Barca transfer negotiators at that time. And again, the new Barca setup are, are, are running the club a little bit better. They're, they're uh, more switched on guys. It hasn't been that easy for Leeds, but I think Leeds did, did get a decent deal in, in this case. And what's the perception of Bielsa in, in Spain? That's an interesting one because we're all very much in love with him, enamoured with what he, he represents to us here in Leeds. But uh, what's the view of him over there? Yeah, he's he's really respected. Going back to the famous barbecue when Pep Guardiola went over to visit him in in Mexico, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, back before Pep Guardiola became the Pep Guardiola, the, the super coach that he is today, he's been seen as a a kind of guru, a guy who um, had influenced so many different coaches. Simeone played for him as well. Um, everybody would have a huge amount of respect for, for Bielsa. They're also well aware of his his idiosyncrasies, his the kind of unique character that he is. That that you um, you have to kind of go with it with Bielsa and accept him everything that that comes with him if you're going to get the best and put in put a situation in around him where um, he feels supported and that that he can work within. Because at Athletic Bilbao, which is where he, he coached in the Liga before, um, remember going to Samames a couple of times. And um, does that famous Europa League games against Manchester United when um was like amongst the best atmospheres at a stadium that, that I've ever been to as a as a fan or as a as a working journalist. But things didn't end that well. Bielsa was loved, but then it didn't end that well for Mad Athletic Bilbao. In Bilbao as well, they were kind of they weren't able to to bend. Athletic club in, in Bilbao have their own very set traditions, very, very proud history. And they they really liked Bielsa for a while, but but in the end they weren't willing to to make the changes that he wanted. And he fell out quite badly with some of the, the players at, at Samamez in the end. So again, it's been good from, from Leeds' point of view, the way that they've been able to put those kind of Victor Orta, I guess, is, is very important for that to, to to allow Bielsa to do his job and to to not, not piss him off, I guess, or to not get on it, get on the wrong side of him. I'm not sure, has he signed his new contract yet or is he still definitely... He, he hasn't yet, but um, at the time yeah. of recording, he hasn't. But we spoke to Angus Kinnear a little while ago, uh, earlier in the summer, and th- there's no tension around him, him okay, doing that. Cool. I think um, it's because he will view, I don't know, putting a, a pipe next to the pitch, the same. Yeah. He, he puts the same weighting on that as, let's say, signing his contract. So I think because he's, he's paying all his staff as well, isn't he? And there's obviously complications around him employing a, a, bu- a bunch of other people. So it has to be translated to Spanish and then back again. So... It just takes time and he'll, he'll get cool. there when he gets there. But there's no tension, I don't think, particularly among the fan base. No, everyone seems cool. relaxed. He, yeah. He's very much involved in planning for next season, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't strike a, a strength as a man who's on his way. No. Nice one, nice one. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and Junior as well. I mean, you, you get the sense that someone like Junior wouldn't be signing if there were problems around um, around the contract. You, you imagine he's buying into something, which actually leads me on to my next point, Dermot. What will it take for Junior to succeed at Leeds, do you think? I think it, it's all set up for him. I think that, as I mentioned before, the, when he was at his best at Betis, he was playing in a a team 
which were quite similar. They were an attacking team, a team who who went to go for the games, who who went you know man for man marking as well, who pressed up the pitch, who you know took risks and it paid off for them at that stage, which is really similar to to I think what what Bielsa wants for Leeds, and he's he's not going to change either. So I see it as being you know a move that can can work out really well for everybody. The questions over Junior would be over him defensively, over whether he gets gets back on the cover, over whether he's um, physically up to to playing week in week out as well is going to be something because I I know you know being physically fit and resistant and consistent and, and everything is a big thing for for Bielsa as well. But but I, you know I, I don't really see it as being a problem there, um, and I think it's you know it should work out really really well. Into the top two now, we're playing for the silver medal position here in Phil's top ten signings since 2006, which we're doing to keep Phil involved in his very own podcast while he recovers at home. Recorded these in April for you. So far, Paddy Kiznobo at 10, Robert Snodgrass, number 9, 8 was Luciano Becchio, 7, Liam Cooper, 6, Rafinha, 5, Jermaine Beckford, 4, Stuart Dallas, number 3 was Luke Ayling, number 2, The Machine, Matthias Cleek. Michael was getting a bit humpty about this, and I, I would like to know why. Is, is it down to these these three, like Dallas, Ayling and Cleek, you could interchange them? I think it's just... it's. The immediate form of them, I guess, that, mm. that since Christmas, we've not seen an awful lot from Click, whereas we've seen Dallas and Ailing push on to be, well, Ailing always was, but Dallas now as a as a key member of a midfield. Yeah, if you said to me, I think Dallas should be second and Click fourth, I wouldn't fight you in the car park over that particularly. I'd fight you in the car park over the, the claim that you were a sexier bolder man than me when uh, Prince <laughs> William was, was getting that, that title. But on this, we can, um, we can shake hands and, and agree. It's definitely true that Cleek's form has dipped um, post-Christmas in the Premier League. And I think um, at this stage, and we are recording this in advance, so we will probably be beyond the end of the season. I think it's safe to say that his form has dipped basically since the point where Bielsa said he could play for any team in the world, (laughs) give or take. But Bielsa would never say that lightly. Bielsa would never give you a throwaway comment about that because more often than not, when you ask him about individual players he'll stop himself at the point where he says, yeah, they've been good and yeah, they've made an impact and and everything else. But he's not effusive like that very often. And it's not because he wants to insult them. I think it's just because he he never wants to go over the top and he always realises that you've got another game in a few days' time and it's very easy for these comments to look embarrassing um, a little bit further down the line. But Cleek was 1.5 million from um, FC20 and to begin with, it looked like 1.5 1.5 million that was going to go down the tubes. He was injured in his first pre-season. Christensen just did not warm to him at all. And then by the time Heckenbottom came in, um, he'd already gone back on loan to Utrecht and was, was away in Holland. But I think you have to remember what it is that he did in the championship, which was 92 league starts without a break. There are a lot of players in Bielsa's squad who've played a lot of football and a lot of players who've been in the team consistently and haven't dropped out much. That is an extraordinary number. And and you have to go back to Gordon Strachan, I think, back in the early 90s to, to find another Leeds player who did anything quite like it. And Cleek was one of the players who helped to bring about that complete change in the style of play. The, the, the third man runs, the passing and moving, the interplay in tight areas, working space out wide and, and then creating chances from all that. He was absolutely integral to it. And it's hard to imagine that Leeds, in the same way as they would have they would have suffered without Calvin Phillips and they would have suffered without others. It's hard to think that Leeds under Bielsa would have been the same team, minus Clake in that 8-10 that eight, eight hybrid thing that, that he is. 
and yes, second half of the Premier League season, he, he looked jaded and he looked a bit fatigued. And he said himself he was he was feeling the pace. But I think it would be very wrong on, on the basis of that to start underestimating or to undervalue what he did in the Championship. Reminds me of the saying, form is temporary, class is permanent. So uh, yeah, overlooking the form. So, so justify why you've put him at number two over Ailing at three and Dallas at four then. It's hard to justify. And as I said before, we did the segment on Dallas. It feels like they're joint third, uh, sorry, joint second to me, really. He and Dallas were similar value. I am inclined to think that Kalik was potentially slightly more influential in promotion than Dallas. Although, again, I'm I'm splitting hairs there. I just think they were both part of a, an, an excellent team. But to to have that physically, to be able to withstand... 92 games of Bielsa back-to-back, I think, is is pretty extraordinary. And as a rule, his form was very, very good through that. I know he had dips, but he was always going to have dips. But if you're being fair to him, you felt as if Cleek made a difference more often than not. What I do like about Cleek, and this goes back to what I was saying about Luke Ayling and wanting to be mates with him, it feels like I want to be mates with Matthias Cleek as well because he's a good wind-up merchant, which you always need in your group of friends. But because he's, he's slightly, just very slightly weird, and I like that is you're very slightly out there, mate, because he's into you know your Polish hip hop and and things like that, graffiti and, and all of that. Yeah, and he yeah. doesn't he doesn't really indulge in the, in the the trappings of football per se. You know the culture when you think about you know fast cars and bling and stuff like that. You see some of the players on Instagram just showing off all their bling. He's the antithesis of that, and I think that makes him even more relatable. I think the some of the key incidents he's been involved in for the for want of a better word, shit housing mm-hmm. have been remarkable. The, there's the Villa goal. There was the the one where he, it was all kicking off and he went and poured a bottle of water down someone's back. There was him shushing people on the bench. There was breakdancing on the pitch at Derby and all that sort of stuff. I think for those moments, he will always be a sort of iconic, I think, in, the, in that, well, the, the two Bielsa seasons that we've we've just experienced. So, And also overlooking what a good player he has been as well. As you say, going back to the Bielsa's first game when he gets off the mark for us and it, from that point on, it just felt like it completely turned for him from being someone who... Truthfully, I never expected to see again when he went off on loan at the end of that season. I, I kind of assumed he'd be transferred back to Europe to all of a sudden being a complete mainstay in the team. You know it's deliberate all the shithousing as well because when I went to do the piece with his parents in Poland, his mum was able to recreate all the Spygate stuff and the you know the water down, down the player's back. They'd sort of made a mental note of all the, the wind-up <laughs> merchanting that he'd, he'd, been, he'd been doing. And again, just a likeable, likeable guy, which I think is what you'd say about this this entire squad. And I've been aware over the years at Leeds of individual players or teams, squads at a whole, that the the supporters would quite happily burn out of town at a moment's notice and, and never see again. Whereas I think in years to come, there'll be a lasting relationship with this bunch in the sense that people have loved Bielsa. And I think whatever happens with Bielsa now, you'll never take away what's gone on in these three years. And, and you'll kind of have that philosophical sense of, well, everything ends in failure eventually, doesn't it? That's football. You know, very few managers get to go out in, in their own fashion. It, it normally comes to a crashing halt because that's that's the way it goes. And, and likewise with players, the, the form will tail off. Some of them will get to a point where they're no longer good enough or they're no longer needed, as we're seeing with Hernandez. But even though Hernandez has hardly played this season, you're not going to be left with the, the memory of, of him sitting on the bench or throwing his armband away or kicking that water bottle. It'll always be Swansea away. You know, that's... That's what they've done, and and I think that really is the case from you know from front to back and top to bottom of this squad. They've they've been a group that you can actually actually relate to, and there's a lot to be said for that. 
And now on the Phil Hayes Show, we've got James Dixon, author of The Fix, How the First Champions League Was Won and Why We All Lost. The book, by the way, is out for you to buy online now and in bookshops. It's the story of that 1992-93 season when Leeds played Stuttgart and Rangers. And welcome, James. And there's plenty to get your teeth into from a Leeds perspective. Leeds was the reason why I, I got into this story. It was it was me as a young lad trying to follow the the English champions in Europe, as you sort of did then. You sort of post Heisel. I think it was the the done thing. You know, I'm a Birmingham City fan, and we you, know, you just get behind English teams in Europe. So it's something that has captured me from a very early age. In researching this, I managed to speak with uh, Gordon Strachan and Gary McAllister in, in in a lot of depth about this time. And it's a time I think that the they remember for sort of good and bad reasons. You've just got the fantastic championship win of the previous spring. And it's just going into, a, obviously, a less than stellar title defence, I think that's fair to say. I'm hopefully not <laughs> going to get criticised for, for couching it like that. And five memorable, memorable games. Um, I think one of the the really interesting things around this was uh, understanding the process around that third game that happened between Le- Leeds and Stuttgart. Not just uh, from uh, an English or uh, or British perspective, but understanding how that came to it from the German point of view. And I spoke to uh, Andy Book, who scored against you in in the first and second legs of of that, and understanding how Stuttgart were processing that. And one of the stories, which I think is quite nice in the book, is that they're flying out of Manchester Airport back after the second leg, and the players are all celebrating, and they notice the training staff sort of glum not what you'd expect after going through to the second round. And then news sort of filters back down the plane that they've played that full foreigner who came on for about eight or 10 minutes towards the end. And they come up with this plan to not say anything. It's a very sort of a, it's a terrible movie sort of plot. This is like, maybe if we just don't say anything, nobody will notice. And that lasts as far as the baggage carousel because the, the German press are onto them and they're asking them, why did they play the full foreigner? And it all kicks off from there. Leeds hadn't immediately picked up on the problem, though, had they? It was brought to their attention by a fan. Yeah, uh, as I understand it, a fan rang up the club and they're like, do you know what happened? And they're like, no. And I guess it was just one of those things that is the, you know, sort of the heat of that battle in the second leg. And you've got a number of names, some, some in that Stuttgart team which were German but didn't sound German. So you have Maurizio Gaudinho, who is a German but didn't sound it. And then you, then you have ones that sounded German but weren't. They had uh, a, a couple of Swiss guys. No one noticed. And I think maybe it's a bit stereotypical, but people just didn't assume that there would be a sort of, um, you know, the Germans incredibly efficient. That was the stereotype. They won't make a mistake. Uh, And of course they did. And what do you take from speaking to McAllister and Strachan? I think both of them feel that you could have gone further, a sort of missed opportunity there, because obviously the prize it wasn't just getting getting to the third round or the quarterfinals. It was getting into the inaugural Champions League where you'd be guaranteed those six games and you'd have been paired with Marseille and Bruges and, Mos- and CSK Moscow. Yeah, so I think they felt that the, the talent was in the team to go further than what you did. Obviously, a lot of respect for Rangers and, and Gary's at Rangers now as, as an assistant, but also understanding the problems that were happening within the Leeds team at the time, the disruption that Eric was causing, depending on your point of view there, and the change that happened in 92 as well with the backpass rule, changing the way that you guys played a little bit and some of the struggles that maybe John Lukic had adapting to that initially. 
And I think it's just seen as a, as a bit of a missed opportunity. Obviously, some great memories in there as well. The Ellen Road game against Stuttgart, going to Barcelona, the atmosphere in those two Battle of Britain games. There's a lot of cherished memories, but I, th- I you know, get speaking to them, I feel like they thought there was a there was another stage in it for Leeds, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was a very strange set of circumstances and it ended up with that famous night in the new Camp when Carl Schutt scored. And it feels to me like UEFA didn't really know what to do with it, did they? I think it was incredibly convenient that Stuttgart won 3-0 in the first leg. It gave UEFA an out. It gave them a way where they could be seen to be punishing Stuttgart, but not punishing them too harshly because of the infraction, which was relatively minor. I mean, we're thinking about it now. From my point, you know, you look at it with, with the benefit of where we are now in European football, it's just like a fourth foreign player played for eight minutes. If your entire, and after winning the championship, because obviously you're not just finishing fourth to get in the Champions League, you have to be your domestic champions. If you were thrown out of Europe for that sort of infraction, if that happened to my club, I would, I would think that was quite harsh. So I think it, it was a convenient punishment because they were able to give you guys a technical free nil win even though you won 4-1 on the night, and have this situation where they go, oh, everyone's sort of happy, we'll play a third game. And so I, I genuinely don't know what they'd have done if, say, you lost, you know, if you lost 3-1 in the first leg. I don't know what punishment they would have come up with because, it, you know, like I say, it just it just feels like a convenient sort of get out of, um, get out of jail card. Certainly um, Gary McAllister, when I spoke to him, was really, really strong on that. He, he was adamant there was no way that you should have even been asked to play again that Leeds should have just gone through to the second round that was was his view then and I'm pretty confident it remains his view today the book is more than Leeds though and it is centered around some very big characters who who come across almost as gangsters in the story not unintentionally I think some of the things (laughs) that they did were you know is, is proven to be in certain cases say tappy certainly proven criminality and in other cases you know you might look at that and think hmm borderline <laughs> sort of so I, th- I think there's there's not too much dissimilarity between the way that they operated and and certain sort of underworld professions they wanted they knew what they wanted they were prepared to get it in in many ways you know either by investing lots of money or by you know strong arming people or trying to trying to influence people to make rulings in their favor it was uh, yeah it was a bit of a wild west time for for european football one really prescient thing that you touch on in the book is the European Super League, which was at the root of what they wanted back in 92, 93, and still do. Yeah, and uh, if I'm allowed a couple of seconds of, of blowing my own trumpet, all written before the Super League uh, debacle. <laughs> um, but this sort of thing comes up every couple of years. For a long time, the Super League has been a threat, uh, first sort of mooted by Berlusconi in the mid-80s, but as a, a threat to say, give us what we want UEFA or we'll go and organize our own competition a threat that i think is overblown and has been has been has been proven to be overblown through through the sort of fan and, and government reaction to what they're trying to do but essentially these big clubs they didn't like the 80s <laughs> a lot of if you go if you look back at who was winning the european cup in the 80s it's stawa bucharest it's porto it's psv eindhoven it's red star belgrade in 1991 that's not what they want. They want Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus. Though that you know, those are the clubs that they believe should be winning the European Cup or the Champions League is what it became. So they were looking for ways to wrest control uh, of European football away from everyone, really, and, and to make it less egalitarian and, and to 
and to reward what they might call uh, sustained success or, or legacy clubs, essentially. And, you know, as much as people might have lined up behind UEFA initially when the Super League proposals were sort of uh, knocked back, UEFA has been complicit in this. UEFA has, has, has allowed the big clubs to gain more and more power and more and more control over European football to the point where they're they were almost strong enough to break away from the pyramid structures below them. UEFA's willingly gone along with that because of the because of the profits that they've been sharing in. So it's um, it's very sad when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it does make you wonder whether we'll still be talking about it in another 30 years and which clubs we're going to be talking about then. And a quick reminder then that the book is called The Fix, How the First Champions League Was Won and Why We All Lost. It's by you, James Dixon, and it's out now. James, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, mate top 10 signings since 2006 we wanted to do this uh, and record it back in april just to keep phil involved with his own podcast your top 10 so far then paddy kiznorbo at 10 snoddy at 9 becchio 8 cooper at 7 rafinha at 6 beckford at 5 dallas at 4 ailing 3 click 2 your number one is it somebody who's head and shoulders above everybody else or was this a close run thing in your mind for your number one i felt like he was head and shoulders above everybody else without being unfair to the others who are in the list who do all deserve to be there. I, I don't think by saying that this guy is head and shoulders above them, it diminishes their impact or the difference that they've made to the club. But number one is Pablo Hernandez. And I would be genuinely interested to know if there's anybody out there who disagrees with that, if there's anybody out there who can think of a more a, a signing that's made more impact, especially for the, the money that was paid. I mean, he was a snip, really, was Hernandez when he came from the Middle East. And part of the reason for that was because people seemed to have forgotten about him. He'd, he'd gone back to Spain on loan from Al Arabi and he'd been at Rayo Vallecano, who'd, who'd got relegated. And it felt as if he was a long way on from the Valencia days and winning the League Cup at, at Swansea. It seemed as if all the all the kind of momentum behind him had, had gone. And the reason he came back was that Gary Monk knew him. And Gary Monk knew what, what he could do and, and how he could play. But even then, it was done initially on a, a six-month loan deal to, to see how he got on. And, and people probably remember that in his first few weeks, first month um, of the season at Leeds, it, it was difficult for him. He was being played in that number 10 role, but it was all a little bit intense. Teams were getting on top of him. He, he wasn't particularly influential. But he's a player who, in the years where he could quite easily have been tailing off, He's hit his best form. He's absolutely peaked and, and he's delivered some magic that I don't think that people at Valencia would even have, have seen from him. And, and it almost feels with um, Hernandez as if he had his tailing off period at the age of 28, 29, when he decided he was going to go off to Qatar um, and, and have a bit of an adventure and, and then, let's be honest, earn some, some big money out there too. But it's been pretty rare, I think, over the years to see somebody who at 33, 34, 35, has completely exploded in terms of his form. He's just been, he's been brilliant in the periods where he's been brilliant. And I can't think of anybody who would have dragged Leeds over the line in the way that he did um, in the promotion season. It, it, at the point at which you needed somebody to be an absolute genius and to do it every time they came onto the pitch, Hernandez was there and never ever forget us asking Bielsa, do you think you can make him a better player? Which I absolutely think he did. And him saying, I think... Hernandez will make me a better coach and I think on reflection Bielsa would probably accept that that's exactly what happened I mean the chances are when this goes out we've said a tearful goodbye to Pablo Hernandez so it's just worth adding that because we recorded it back in April and I will be devastated to see him go because he represents what we were saying before he's part of that team of a particular era and 
it's only through growing up myself that I've realised with the promotion, you kind of have that awareness that you're living through history. And he was such a large part of that. I mean, they don't paint murals on the side of buildings of anybody, do they? If he has gone, I'll, I'll be happy for him too, I think. And as much as you, you never want to outstay your welcome and you never want to be at a club who feel as if you've got nothing left to contribute or at least that you, you're not going to contribute in in a particularly full-on way. And if he has left, no idea where he, where he would have gone, potentially back to Castellon in Spain. But he clearly does have some football left in him and it would be nice to see him be able to make the most of that before he does retire, which in retirement camp can't be far away for him now. But you'd you'd hate the idea of him just having two dead seasons, um, you know, his contract running out at Leeds and, and that being him. And I would suspect that at the age of 36, 37, the impact on your legs of not playing regularly would be huge. And it, it might be, you know, that it's it's difficult, having had a period of nothing, very difficult to get yourself going again and, and to be able to play at any sort of prominent level. So again, would go with everybody's best wishes, um, including Bielsa's, I think, despite what's gone on this season. I think what was nice to see with Pablo during the promotion, well, the, both the failed promotion bid and the actually getting up, was how much it evidently meant to him as well, because unlike someone like Ailing or Dallas, who was looking to get into the, the sort of top level for the first time, Pablo had kind of already done it. He'd already been there. He'd He'd gone off and seemingly done that sort of partial retirement thing of going off and taking the money and and then to have having come back and he was he was so determined to get us up like the there were games when he would just drag us out of the mire time and time again and he would come on and change things and even in some games you got the impression that he was just like give me the ball I'm going to have to score no one else is going to do it so here I am instead and they were using him almost as special teams in that regard weren't they during the promotion running not playing him for long stretches taking advantage of the extra subs rule and stuff like that it seemed really really clever management you know given with the aid of hindsight looking back on it and it worked but to use him in that way was so so clever and for it to have turned around from him being in tears on the pitch at Brentford the previous year when he it was obviously the automatic promotion was was over it it all just absolutely came together for him and in a, a really bizarre circumstances I think that this sort of return from, to football after lockdown is something that will never be repeated again hopefully and it was but it was just Pablo's moment it feels like those were those were his games if you put together a highlights reel of Hernandez and limited it to really exceptional moments so passes that require that special touch or brilliant assists or brilliant goals so not just tappings or, or whatever else it would be absolutely endless i mean it would go on go on forever you you only have to sit and think about him for 10 seconds to start remembering and recalling the, the goal against West Brom and, and that performance against Millwall in Bielsa's first season and the pass for Harrison against Fulham, the, the goal down at Swansea, it just all trips off the tongue. We we were lucky enough, Dan and I, to, to go and speak to him early in the, the Premier League season after after promotion. And the, the really fascinating bit was talking to him about how he manipulates the ball and what he does and him talking about... I'd done a piece with Phillips a couple of months earlier and Phillips has said, look, whenever the ball comes to me... I look for Hernandez. You know, first thing I do is look for Pablo because he's the one who's going to make things happen. And actually, not that long back, I did a piece on the Deportivo game, and Nigel Martin was saying um, when we I watched it back with with Nigel, and he was saying if you look at David Batty, whenever Batty wins the ball, every time if he can, he sends the ball to Harry Kuehl because Kuehl was our best player, and Kuehl was the player who was going to make things happen. And there was kind of a bit of symmetry there in in what Phillips was doing with Hernandez. But Hernandez explaining to us how always had in his head what his next pass was going to be before the ball came to him. You know, he always knew what he was going to try and do. He always knew what his best option was going to be. And it was partly inherent, but it was partly a conscious thing on on his behalf to work out what was around him and to make sure 
He knew what was around him. and He was always ahead of time as well, wasn't he? Was he was ahead of it, time, yeah. but he made sure that he was because he looked at what was there and he read the pitch properly. If, if you go back and watch his goal against Swansea, look at the number of times that Hernandez glances over his shoulder. The whole screening thing, you know, of, of working out who's there, how much space he has, how much time he's going to have. It's about four, five, six glances just to be clear in his head of what the situation is. And then very sort of different, but requiring the same mentality and the same intelligence. The third goal against Fulham after the lockdown and that ball, which is almost played blind to Harrison over the top. It's the same thing. You've got to strike it perfectly and you've got to get it in the zone and the percentages have got to fall in your favour because if you play it slightly short, defender gets a head on it, gets a toe on it, whatever else. But you try that because you know you can do it and you try that because you know if you do get it right, it's going to open things up and it was just pure genius, the sort of thing that when you're in the championship, you don't see much of. That run at Swansea, I have watched that. And if you watch what he does, if you see his, because I watch it just about, I think once or twice a week at least, (laughs) just to remind myself of what was one of the greatest moments of my entire life, seeing him score that. He stops his run. He Mm -hmm. actually checks his run just to give himself that yard around the penalty spot, sort of 13 yards out, whatever he might be. Because everybody else is He's, moving towards goal. Yeah. So he stops and it does, it just opens up a little bit of extra space. And he does, he takes that glance, takes that touch. And even though it's not a perfect connection, he knows exactly where that needs to go. The one spot that it can go in. Mm-hmm. And if he's going to be remembered by a single moment, it's going to be that single moment, isn't it? I mean, what a moment. He didn't seal promotion for us officially, but I think that's when even the arch pessimists like myself thought that's done. That Swansea was the hardest game we had left of that season. It was the end of the game, so it was one of those where you can you can almost roll the goal celebration into the full time celebration as well. And it was it was one of the most emotional five minutes of my life, I think, having the ball hitting the net and that game finishing and realizing that we were basically there. West Brom and Brentford must have been sitting thinking, Fucking hell. Like, you know, <laughs> they they were so they were so on the tail of Leeds through that that run in. And it wasn't as if Leeds ever really let them back into it. I know there was the, the drop points against Luton and there was the defeat at Cardiff but it felt like every time Brentford or West Brom landed a punch Leeds did the same and that was that weekend where they'd still have had the initiative Leeds but it could really have closed up again and it would have made for a pretty horrible week As and I know the Barnsley game was horrible but that was just a case of getting right to the line but definitely definitely came away from Swansea thinking there's no way back now they've done this and they're not going to get caught and that is just you can't I don't think you can score or have a goal like that and it not be hugely influential and, and hugely decisive. That that was the one. I mean, we have spoken about this before, um, but it always bears repeating because like I said, I watched that Swansea goal all the time. Every, just marvelling at everything from the distance that Luke Ayling covers to the fact that he's still overlapping that late on in the game. But just that moment, I mean, I was at home with my little lad who I've said before, he was having leanings towards Spurs, but he sat there and we shared that moment and he watched me burst into tears, slightly concerned. What's wrong with Daddy? And I think because we were during lockdown for all that and many of us would have watched that game away from friends and family or just with the nearest and dearest it was uh, it was probably a very similar experience for all of us I was completely by myself when that goal went in which is, <laughs> which is slightly odd I'd kind of escaped my children so I could get to watch the game properly and we were just about to record a podcast after it as we as we do these days and it was bizarre in so many ways was that goal it was it was one of those as well that even watching it now, having seen it hundreds of times, I still kind of expect the keeper to just get a fingertip on it and push it around the post. It trickled in at such a at such a slow pace that it almost made the the kind of emotion that poured after after it feel like it happened a bit slower as well. It was almost like 
I can't believe it. <laughs> we, we had a great view of the bench and also it was great to be able to listen to the bench. I actually wrote that day about Bielsa's demeanour in the dugout over 90 minutes and it was kind of reflecting on the fact that you had this 65-year-old guy who looked like he was going to have a coronary and he just thought, how on earth does his body take this strain? But he was quite reserved after the goal went in. Bit of a fist clinch, but just sort of turned away and wiped his nose and, and walked back. But his bench um, yes. and the assistants, they absolutely knew at that point. You could tell that they they thought to themselves, this is it. And then in front of us, because obviously all the players were spread out in the stand because it was just back after COVID and um, they weren't using the dugouts, they were distancing. And you had Berardi sprinting down the steps and then jumping over the advertising board and for some reason trying to strangle Bamford <laughs> behind, behind the goal line. Um, and it was... It was just wonderful. It was the moment where Huddersfield scored the second against West Brom was that tingling moment of thinking this is actually about to happen. And I think that was the point at which you knew you were about to cross into the celebrations that everybody had been waiting, you know, like 15, 16 years to see. And we had this big, big read on Bielsa that had been sat in the system for several weeks. And, you know, you were just waiting for the green light to send it and all the stuff that was going to go on over the weekend potentially winning the title and then the game at Derby it was like the the starting gun going off but that goal at Swansea like I say you just you just knew deep down that that was it and it's great as well do have a look on YouTube if you look for Pablo Hernandez versus Swansea bench reaction you can see that there's the wide angle and it captures the entire left half of the pitch as that goes in and you see the subs and you see Berardi vaulting the advertising boards and sprinting off down towards the corner when Pablo's whipping off his shirt. But then if you keep your eye on the right-hand side of the screen, you see uh, Melier, don't you? And he sprinted. It pretty much did what, what Luke Ayling did and sprinted from that end of the pitch right up to that corner. He's so tall, he was like a racehorse. He covered that pitch in about in about seven seven seconds. But don't forget the hours that Bielsa's staff had put in, not just that season, but the season before. And actually, you know, going back years and years, those of who, who've been with him for a long time and People always criticise Bielsa for the the number of trophies that he has on his record. But you've also got the staff in the background who, I guess, eventually need these these moments. You know, they need these moments of achievement to make it all feel worthwhile, to make it feel like more than just the privilege of being involved and in the centre of Bielsa's camp and and right in the the inner circle. You need it to mean something and to lead to something. And I think on on that day, you could see how much everybody had put into it and, and how much it mattered that it was actually going to pay off. So any other runners and riders who didn't quite make the, the top 10 of your signings since 2006? I am guilty about not including Bamford. I do feel guilty about that. He's been so good. He's such um, a nice lad as well. He is. And, and also, it's hard to think of a player who's had to cope with more scepticism, particularly while being actually backed by the head coach. You know, Bielsa was so loyal and, and had so much faith in him. But there was still that constant discussion of, is he good enough for Leeds? Is he good enough for the Championship? Is he good enough for the Premier League? And then weirdly, it's, is he good enough for England? And you sort of think, as we were chatting about with Ailing and Dallas and others, how far is this going to go? You know, what, what, at what point is he going to hit his limit? And if I'm being honest, I don't really know why I left him out. And it's hard to justify leaving him out. I, I, at £7 million, I felt like they were paying as much as they should have been paying for him at that point. You know, it, it wasn't like an a underpriced deal. It wasn't, a, it, you know, a, a deal that you looked at and thought, that's absolutely great value. And he was quite a slow burn in the first season and he wasn't great in the second leg of the playoff against Derby. But since then... I was knackered, to be fair, wasn't he? He was injured. Well, yeah, and, and hadn't had the benefit of 
building up any rhythm or finding his touch or anything else. And once he did, and once he was first choice number nine, he just little by little turned into a completely different personality and player and, and part of the part of the team. So yeah, I, I would have liked to have squeezed him in. And, and I mentioned right at the very start, Chris Wood and, and Ross McCormack, terrific seasons, their best seasons. I mean, really, really impressive. And and with McCormack, I think his 29 goals were the difference between, you know, a really sort of anxious, horrible 15th place finish or whatever it was, and actually some pretty severe trouble at the bottom of the league. I just don't feel that in future years, when you look back at the players who were most influential and who who took leads to the things that they needed to to achieve that you're going to mention either of them. Yeah, it wasn't really underpinned by any consequence, was it? There was no, no. real result there with, with either of them, as good as they both were. Although I think the return on investment for McCormack should be looked at as well, because we, we did sell him for a phenomenal amount of money. And, at and Chris, Chris, Chris Wood even more so. He came in for about three million and went for 15 over to Burnley. Uh, so both of those really astute signings from a, a financial point of view. What about you two? Anybody who would sneak in there? I feel like Gradle... Maybe yep. is in with a shout. He made made some really good, mainly appearances off the bench actually in League One. But then towards the end of that season, when Beckford was out of form, it was Gradle getting the goals there, and then obviously it went catastrophically wrong for the <laughs> Bristol game. But then he came back the next season, was probably our best player in the Championship. Yeah. Then. So I think he being with a shout. Yeah, I can't think of anybody necessarily who had displaced because you know for all that you might want to put Bamford in, who would you leave out? I mean, I think maybe Naylor for Kisnarbo could have been a swap you could have made as well because I think they both had a similar influence in our defence around that time. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And Pontus Janssen was the outside um, option as well. Not so much for what he did on the pitch, but even though he was very good for us, he he ultimately ended in failure with with failing to get promoted. But I feel like his arrival did transform the relationship with the fans Yes, I, th- I think that's I think that's true. Yeah, yeah he's, the, the he's another the, one I would consider. Borderline. The fans and the team started to connect properly when he came in, and you know, as much as it was kind, of, a lot of his play was demonstrative, and you could argue with hindsight that come on, it's a bit too much. It was a bit over the top at that time. We needed it. It was something at the time, wasn't it? When it was, it got pretty boring watching Leeds for a long time. So to have someone come in and who was a little bit box office, even if maybe it was slightly geared towards him, it was fun. So then to give you the complete rundown, Phil's top 10 signings since 2006, the 15 years he's been covering Leeds United. Number 10, Patrick Kisnorbo. Number 9, Robert Snodgrass. Number 8, Luciano Becchio. Number 7, Liam Cooper. Number 6, Rafinha. Number 5, Jermaine Beckford. Number 4, Stuart Dallas. Number 3, Luke Ayling. Number 2, Mateus Click. And your number 1, Pablo Hernandez. Yes, and I would just like to remind people that this is merely a bit of fun. <laughs> It's all right. You'll have your phone switched off, won't you, by the That's time true. this goes That's true. See you out. in September. Nothing, yeah. nothing is fun on the internet. <laughs> you will be wrong in many ways. <laughs> well, that does wrap up the top 10 uh, signings that you've, you've picked for us, Phil. And, you know, good luck going into hospital. This one will go out when you are long since out of hospital and recovering back at home. So I hope your recovery is going well. Thank you very much. And we'll see you back on the podcast soon. Well, that wraps it all up for, uh, for this week. You're looking forward to having Phil back, Michael? A void will be filled, won't it? I think that's the thing. We've, we have missed him. It's been nice to have the guests on. Oh, actually, we should get Eddie Gray every week instead. <laughs> we should say thank you to all our guests who have been on across the, the last few weeks, who you can see in all the last uh, set of episodes in the feed. It's been an absolute pleasure, but it will be a real treat to have Phil back and uh, have his, his searing football insight back on the show. So Phil will return next week. You can sign up for The Athletic for that price for the Euros, £1 a month for six months at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And we'll see you next week on The Phil Hay Show, complete with Phil Hay. The Phil Hay Show.